Why were we put here? I think everyone wants to know, why were we put here? Why are we on Earth? My purpose in life is to, um, to live a normal life, to, to be uh, a citizen, a productive citizen. Intentar pasar por la vida de la manera más desapercibida posible. I don't fully know why I'm here, but I enjoy that. I enjoy knowing that because then that creates endless possibilities for myself. I would like to make a difference, even if it's only in one life. I'd prefer to do more. Because I think the meaning of life, in my opinion, is to find something that you're passionate about and use that passion to make the world around you a better place. Good morning. I'm grateful to be back with you. Over the recent holiday break, for the first time in years, we didn't travel anywhere and we had no house guests, which meant I watched a lot of movies. Some at the theater, most of them at home, and I'm grateful that my son, who's 14, is old enough now that he sometimes enjoys watching those movies with me. And I've been trying to convince him to watch some old classics, the, the really old ones that my dad used to have me watch when I was a kid, like Bridge on the River Kwai and The Great Escape, those great World War II movies. And occasionally I force him to watch a movie with me from my childhood, like The Goonies or Back to the Future. Usually I have to pitch him on the idea. I tell him, hey, we really need to watch whatever the movie is. And his question is always the same. What's it about? And I know I have about 30 seconds to hook him with a compelling narrative about the movie so that he'll actually want to watch it. And honestly, sometimes I fail. And he's like, no way, Dad. I'm not watching my cousin Vinny. It's not going to happen. And I get it, because who wants to waste your time watching a movie that isn't compelling, that's not a great story? Just the other night, my wife and I were surfing through one of those uh, streaming networks looking for something to watch, and she saw an image of a movie that she said everyone's talking about. So we clicked on it, watched the trailer, and for two minutes, I heard nothing except how great the movie was and all the awards it's winning and all the accolades it's getting. But after two minutes, I had no idea what the movie was about. I didn't watch it. I didn't care. We want to engage in stories. We want to be taken somewhere. We want to know that the events we're about to spend two hours watching matter, that they have a direction. You remember Seinfeld, that sitcom back in the 90s? Some of you are old enough like me to remember Seinfeld. There was an episode where George and Jerry, kind of the lead characters, have the opportunity to pitch the idea for a new TV show to the executives at NBC. And they go into this meeting, and George has the brilliant idea of pitching them a show about nothing. And the executives confuse, and George goes on to explain how, well, you know how you woke up today, and you ate something, and you went someplace? He's like, that's the show. It's a show about nothing. And the executive said, that's not a show. And George, or excuse me, Jerry realizes this is falling apart, and he intervenes and says, well, you know, maybe something happens. And George insists, no, nothing happens. It has to be a show about nothing. And, of course, the show flops. It doesn't work at all. Because we are creatures that are designed for meaning. We want purpose. That's how we choose our entertainment, whether a film or a book or a movie. But it goes way beyond that. It also determines how we think about our universe, how we think about our lives. What separates a story from just a random bunch of events is that a story aligns those events and gives them a a trajectory and a direction purpose. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. How do we find purpose in our lives? And what is that purpose? To do that, we're going to look at it in two parts. First, 
I want to explore how we go about finding purpose. What are the different ways we do that? Right ways and wrong ways. And then secondly, if there is a purpose to be found in this world, what does the Christian faith say it is? So let's start with that first question. How do we find purpose? The short answer is it depends. My kids are at an age now where they're asking me really difficult questions, and they know the first thing dad's going to say is, well, it depends. And they roll their eyes. Here comes a sermon from dad. But it does. It depends. The way we find purpose ultimately depends on what sort of universe we think we occupy. If you take the worldviews, the philosophies, even the theologies that are out there, they, they kind of fall into two categories. On one side, there are those that say we live in an accidental universe. And then there are those that say we live in an intentional universe. Let's start with the accidental one. The accidental universe says that this universe is meaningless. There is no direction. There is no story. There is no purpose. It is an ever-expanding cosmos being driven by the innate forces of gravity and energy to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But there's no intention behind it. There's no direction to it. In this universe, we occupy an insignificant speck orbiting an insignificant star on the edge of a galaxy like billions of other galaxies in the universe. And in that universe, your life, like seven billion others, goes utterly unnoticed. Even the most important or most tragic events of history have ultimately no meaning. And all of it is just barreling toward oblivion. Our species and our civilization is merely the result of accidents, and accidents will be its undoing. Over enough time, the universe will continue to expand until it is filled with literally nothing, just cold darkness. That's a vision of an accidental universe. Very charming idea, isn't it? On the other side is the intentional universe. These are worldviews or philosophies that say this universe is indeed expanding by the forces of gravity and energy, and in this universe we still occupy an insignificant speck surrounding an ordinary star on the edge of a galaxy like billions of others, but in this universe, there is actually meaning. There is purpose. There is intention because there is a creator that created this universe and everything in it for a reason. And as a result, our tiny life, along with everyone else on this planet, is always and ever being observed. There is nothing even the most insignificant thing that ever goes unnoticed. Every cry is heard. Every prayer is received. Every event in history, the triumphs and the tragedies, are barreling towards something important, an end that is glorious and more wonderful than we could possibly imagine. As Martin Luther King famously said, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. I would add it also bends toward love and goodness and the triumph of right over wrong. There is a direction to the world. There is a story to this cosmos. So let me ask you, if we were to make a film out of these two visions of the universe, which one would you rather watch? The one that has a story or the one about a universe that's about nothing? The answer is pretty easy, right? We would go for the one that has a story. 
But what's interesting to me is I think most of us in contemporary North America and arguably even most people who occupy the Christian subculture within North America live as if we occupy an accidental universe. Here's why I'd say that. One of the most dominant messages you receive in our culture is that the way we derive purpose is through the choices of the individual. That each person should look inside themselves and decide for themselves what their purpose is, what their dreams are, what their goals are, what their ambitions are, what they want to achieve in the world. And from that internal construct, you develop your own sense of well-being and purpose and direction. One of the things I hear from the teenagers that are constantly flooding in and out of my house or I watch on their social media feeds is this ridiculous phrase, you be you. You hear that? You be you, which is horrible advice, especially if you're a jerk, right? (laughs) No one wants you to be you if you're a jerk. But this you be you mantra is coming from this idea that purpose is something that each individual constructs for themselves. Whatever you want is fine. Figure it out for yourselves, and yeah, you be you. The reason I bring this up is because that idea of personal purpose that we self-construct only makes sense if we live in an accidental universe. It only makes sense if the broader cosmos has no meaning, has no story, has no purpose. In a meaningless universe, yeah, the only option we have is to look inside ourselves and come up with our own issue of meaning and purpose. And unfortunately, even within Christian subcultures, we act this way. We may give God lip service. We'll say, oh, yeah, of course there's a God, and of course he created everything, and sure, he's around and maybe active in the world. And, and if he wants to come along and hitch on to my life and help me achieve my dreams and desires, he's more than welcome to, but ultimately it's my call. It's my story. It's my agenda. It's my purpose. That only makes sense in an accidental universe. Let me uh, illustrate this dilemma from a story in my own life. I wasn't exactly dealing with the question of purpose, more the question of identity, but the way I wrestled with it as an 18-year-old illustrates the way our culture forms us. But to get some understanding of it, you've got to know something about my background. First of all, my name is not actually Sky. It's a nickname that I've had since I was born. I didn't know it was my nickname until I was about 10 years old. That's a whole other thing I'll probably be in therapy for at some point. <laughs> but it's a nickname. My given name is Akash, which is a Hindi name, A-K-A-S-H, Akash. It means sky in Hindi, which is why my nickname is Sky. The reason why I have a Hindi name is my father is an immigrant from India. My middle name is Charles, which is my Norwegian grandfather's name. Because my mother is a native uh, Chicagoan, Anglo background, mostly English and Scandinavian, and so I have this really bizarre mixed background of Indian and Anglo-Scandinavian. Someone joked that I must get my meatballs at Ikea with curry, which actually sounds pretty good. (laughs) Um, So I have this amalgam of cultures and backgrounds and names. And the dilemma I faced when I was 18 years old, I was graduating high school, heading out to college, out of state, big university. Nobody from my graduating class was going to this school. And I thought, finally, the perfect opportunity to reinvent myself. But the dilemma I had was, what name would I use? Because growing up with the nickname Sky, I hated it. 
It's weird. Where did the E come from? I've never gotten that explanation. I hated it. Kids tease me. It was weird. It's not my real name. But as I was going off to school, the dilemma was, do I go with my given name, Akash, which is ethnic and different? Do I go with my middle name, Charles, which is at least English, and maybe I can fit in a little bit more? What do I do? And so I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled for months around this question of my name and my identity. Here's why I bring it up. As a fairly narcissistic 18-year-old, I was completely consumed with this question, but it was an internal decision for me. What do I want to be called? What is my identity? What will my name be? And that's very much how a lot of us have been taught by our culture to think about this question of purpose. Just look inside yourself. Decide what you want, what your dreams are, what your ambitions, what your goals. Make the purpose up for yourself. Oblivious to anything outside yourself. Well, I kind of stayed in that self-centered posture for a while until, for reasons I can't recall, I finally sat down with my mom and I asked her, why on earth did you give me a Hindi name? You're not from India. You don't even speak Hindi. You're not Hindu by background. Why didn't you give me a first name that was English like all the other kids? And what she told me changed everything. You see, when my parents first met, my father was already a widower. He had been married in India to an Indian woman who died tragically young from cancer, but not before giving birth to my dad's firstborn, my older brother. When my parents met, my older brother was a toddler, about two years old, and my mother said that she fell in love with that little boy, not just his father. They married, and my mom legally adopted my brother, but he came with a Hindi name and a nickname. When I was growing up, we didn't talk about half-brother or stepmother. We didn't use any of that language in our home. He was just my brother, and I thought he was darker than me because he used to drink Hershey syrup right out of the can. (laughs) But as I had this conversation with my mom, she explained that when I was born a few years later, she decided to give me a Hindi name, not because she liked Hindi names or even particularly liked my name. But she said, I gave you a Hindi name and a nickname because I didn't want your older brother to feel odd or strange in our family as the only kid with a Hindi name. And it it hit me like a lightning bolt. I had been thinking about this whole thing wrong. My name, strangely, wasn't about me. It was a gift given by my mother to her adopted son. My name was part of a bigger story, a bigger community, a bigger family. And at 18, in my narcissism as a teenager, just thinking about myself, I was oblivious to the bigger story I was a part of and what my name meant to other people, not just to me. And it changed my thinking. How do you think about your purpose? Do you recognize that you occupy a universe that already has a story, that already has a meaning and a purpose given to it by our Creator, and that you fit within that larger cosmos and that your life has a purpose that isn't just about you? 
And determining your purpose is not just an isolated, solitary endeavor where you construct it from your own dreams and desires and invite God to come along as as you want. No, it's about finding out what did your Creator intend for you in this bigger story? And how do you fit into that thing? So which universe do you act like you occupy? Do you live as if the world is an accident? meaningless, without purpose, in which you can construct whatever you want out of it? Or do you recognize you occupy an intentional universe, a universe with a story that existed before you that you're called to fit within? So that's the first question. That leads us to the second. If this universe does have purpose and intention, what is it? Well, That's also complicated, and it also depends. Pretty much every worldview, every philosophy, every religion seeks to answer the question of human purpose, and we don't have time to cover the waterfront there, so let's just talk about what does the Christian faith say our purpose is, and virtually every Christian tradition and denomination roots that answer in the words of the Bible, and it's covered in many different places in different ways, and This morning, I just want to look at one part of Scripture, and that's Genesis chapter 1, a passage which may be familiar to many of you. I'm going to look at just a few verses, and I want to avoid a lot of the debates and controversies about Genesis 1 as it relates to modern scientific thinking and stuff like that. And instead, look at this in the context of the ancient Near Eastern cultures to which this text was originally written. And I think when you do that, you begin to see how revolutionary human purpose as described by the scriptures of Israel really is. If you have a copy of Genesis 1 in your scriptures today, I encourage you to turn there. I'm going to begin reading in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. These are very familiar words to many people. Even those who don't have any kind of church background have probably heard this somewhere. But we forget how extraordinary they are how revolutionary they are. Let me help put it in a little bit of context. When you study the creation myths of other religious traditions, particularly the the other cultures that immediately surrounded Israel to whom this text is written, Egypt, Mesopotamia, even later the Greeks, they all have their own creation myths, stories that were meant to define human purpose. And one of the unifying themes you find in those ancient creation myths is that in one form or another, they all communicated that the gods created human beings to be their slaves, to be their servants. So, for example, in most of these other uh, pantheons of deities from these other cultures, these deities needed to be fed. And so they created people to cultivate the earth, to grow crops or to herd cattle, and we were supposed to sacrifice these these crops and these cattle to feed the gods. Or in some traditions, the gods needed temples to dwell in, and so they created people to build them temples, homes, houses. 
In other traditions, the gods would fight with one another like squabbling siblings on a soap opera, and they created humans to be the foot soldiers in their wars with one another. And occasionally you come across a creation myth where one person in all the earth is given a a higher status. They're not just slaves. They're not just to help. And this one person is created to represent the gods on earth, and that's usually the king or pharaoh in the case of Egypt. But all of us, the rest of us, we're, we're just the help. We're just servants. We're just slaves. Which means in most ancient traditions of creation, human life is expendable. We are just here to do what the gods want us to do and need us to do, and that is it. But the Christian scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, are fundamentally different. Because they present a God that is very, very different than the deities in these other cultures. For example, in numerous places in the Old Testament, the Lord kind of mocks this idea of feeding him with our sacrifices. In Psalm 50, he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. The whole earth is mine and everything in it. I don't need you little creatures to feed me. Isaiah 66, he talks about how he does not dwell in temples built by people. He says, the entire cosmos is my temple. And the earth is just my footstool. The refrain of the Hebrew Scriptures over and over and over again is that God does not need us. He is quite sufficient without us. And so the message of Genesis 1 in this creation account is not that human beings were created to serve God. We were not created to be His servants and His slaves because any God that needs our help is not a God worthy of our worship. No, 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 no. The message of Genesis 1 is remarkably different. What's evident here is that we were not created to serve God. We were indeed created to represent Him. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. In the other creation myths, there was maybe one person created in God's image, the Pharaoh or the king. But in Genesis 1, it says, we are all male and female created in the image of God. We all carry innate dignity as the children of God. We are not slaves. We are sons and we are daughters. This is the foundation for our belief in human dignity, the notion that every single human life matters. Every human life is made in the image of our Creator. Young and old, black and white and Asian and Hispanic, male and female, Republican and Democrat, documented and undocumented, born and unborn, abled or disabled, every human life matters. This has been a revolutionary idea throughout history. It is the basis by which we as Christians fought against slavery. It is what motivated us to reform prisons and continues to lead us to reform the justice system. It is what led us to enfranchise women and create democracies where people have a voice. It is why we advocate for human rights, even the rights of those we profoundly disagree with, because every life matters. But there's a second component that we must not lose sight of. Genesis 1 says that we not only are made in God's image, but we are made to have dominion over the earth. 
This idea gets kind of twisted and abused often in political culture and in our battles with different worldviews, but the notion here is important to grasp. When the Lord calls us to have dominion or to rule over the earth, that is not a license to, to kind of pillage and waste and do whatever we want with this wonderful creation of His. The call to rule as image bearers of God means that we are called to go throughout this world and make something of it. Yes, we are to build cities and civilizations and cultures and families and schools and architecture and art and science and music and literature and all the things that we as a species do. But as we go about that work, we are to do it in a way which reflects the character of our Creator, which means we do it not selfishly or with greed and ambition, but we do it for the sake of others. We do it to see the flourishing of others. We do it in a way which is equitable and just and sustainable. We do it in a manner which brings a reflection of God's character into this world. Richard Lentz is a a theologian who's written a lot about this, and he uses the metaphor of a mirror to describe our human purpose. He says a mirror is an image of what it means to be made in God's image. A mirror does not find its identity or purpose in itself. Right? It's not about going inward and going, what do I want? What do I dream? And what do I desire? A mirror does not find its purpose or identity in itself, but in that which it reflects. And we have been created to reflect God's image everywhere we go and in everything we do. That is our purpose. Let me tell you a little bit about when I first started coming to terms with what this looked like for me. There's a about almost 20 years ago now, when I was a seminary student. And one semester, I I was a volunteer student chaplain at a local hospital. And I I volunteered for that role partly because I knew I would be terrible at it. Uh, If I was going into pastoral ministry, I thought, I need to get more comfortable of dealing with people in these kinds of situations. And uh, it's not innately who I am, and I wanted to gain that skill. So I enrolled in this program. I was a hospital student chaplain, and it was tough. I really, really struggled with it, especially at first, for at least two reasons. Number one, because I'm naturally introverted. And the idea of going into strangers' hospital rooms all day long to strike up conversations with them at some of the most fragile moments of their lives was just terrifying to me. And the other reason I was really intimidated and nervous about this and not very good at it is at the time I was only about 25 years old. And I was going into these hospital rooms with most patients being two or three times my age, at least. And I just felt like I have nothing to impart to these people, right? A hospital chaplain is supposed to be somebody with a whole lot more wisdom and gravitas and gray hair. I had hair back then. It wasn't gray. And so I was super intimidated by the whole thing. And I I just stumbled and struggled my way through for the first couple weeks. And I had this very compassionate supervisor and he understood my struggles, and he gave me various tactics and skills and, and procedures to help me through it. But ultimately, what helped me most was something that I've never forgotten that he taught me. He said, Sky, every time you put your hand on a door handle and you're about to go into a hospital room, I want you to recite this to yourself. I want you to say to yourself, in this room, I represent the presence of God. And he told me that, and I'm like, this is not helping. This is not making me feel better. I'm already intimidated. I'm a 25-year-old seminary student, and now you want me to represent God incarnate in the hospital room? 
and he said, well, whether you want to or not, when you go in there and say you're a chaplain, that's what everyone's going to think. And I realized over time that he didn't give me that saying as a way of making me feel more confident. That wasn't his goal. What my supervisor wanted me to understand is I had to get over myself. I had to get over my introversion. I had to get over my intimidation of only being 25 years old because what I was doing in that room was important. It mattered. What he was trying to do was give me a sense of dignity, of value. There were people in those hospital beds who were facing, in many cases, the most challenging circumstances of their lives. They were alone. They were afraid. They were wondering, is this just an accidental universe in which nothing matters and I'm looking down the barrel of oblivion? And in those moments, they need somebody to come alongside them and remind them that, no, you're not alone. You don't have to be afraid. This universe does have meaning and purpose, a creator and he loves you, and he's with you. And Sky, that's your job in this room. So get over yourself, because what you're doing matters to the person in that bed. Now, what I didn't probably have the theology or maturity to articulate at the time, but I think I do now, is to realize that this call to represent God in every room we enter is not just the calling of a chaplain. And it's not just the calling of a pastor or a missionary or a priest. It is the calling of every human being. It is the calling of every creature made in God's image, male and female. We are all called to represent God everywhere we go and into every room we enter. We are all called there to reflect the character of a loving, gracious, just powerful God. And you might be thinking, hey, wait, wait a minute, time out. I don't go into hospital rooms. I don't communicate, you know, spiritual truths to people. I don't stand up on platforms at churches and talk like you do, Sky. What are you, no, this doesn't apply to me. It does. And I'm really grateful it does. Because not everybody should be doing what I'm doing. We need the presence of God reflected in every part of our world. Let me give you a story of a, a friend I met who, who does this. One of the privileges I have is I travel a lot and I get to meet a lot of fascinating people. And I'm especially encouraged when I meet a man or a woman who deeply understands their calling to reflect God wherever they go. And they do it in a way I never would have imagined in their context, in their vocation, in whatever room they go into. And one day I met a, a man named David. David is an architect and he happens to design uh, Major League Baseball stadiums and football stadiums and arenas. And I was in Pittsburgh with him because he is the guy who was the lead architect on the park for the Pittsburgh Pirates, PNC Park. And he took me around the stadium and explained how he designed different parts of it and why he designed it the way he did. And there was a game later that afternoon, and we got to sit together, and I sat right next to him during the game. And I don't care about baseball. My father's from India. He tried to teach me about cricket one day. I thought that was crazy too. But, I, I, so, but David and I spent the whole game basically as he's pointing out different parts of the stadium and, and why he designed it the way he did and how he oriented the park in such a way that the spectators can look out and see this incredible framed skyline of Pittsburgh and the bridges over the rivers. And he said that he did that because he, he wanted the, 
the citizens of the city to look out on their skyline and take some civic pride and a sense of unity of this is our home, this is where we belong. And, and I pointed out a feature in left field and asked them about it. There's a, there's a spiral ramp in left field of PNC Park. A lot of major league or NFL stadiums have these things. They're the ramps that connect the different levels of the stadium. And usually these ramps are hidden behind the seating, but in this case there's this spiral ramp that's right there, right in left field, completely exposed to the, to the field. And I asked, why, why'd you do that when the rest of them are hidden behind and all that? And, and he laughed and he, and he looked at me and he said, he said, didn't Jesus say that in his kingdom the first would be last and the last would be first? I'm like, what on earth are you talking about? And he said, why should only the wealthiest citizens of Pittsburgh have great views of the game. He said, I did that because I wanted the poorer citizens of Pittsburgh who could only afford a standing room only ticket to have a great unobstructed view of the game. And sure enough, all along the railing of that spiral ramp were people standing, room only seats, tickets, watching the game right on top of the action. David is a follower of Jesus. And when he entered the room where that ballpark was being designed, he chose to represent the presence of God in the designing of a major league ballpark. This isn't just about the words we say, as important as they are. It isn't just about meeting people in their crises in a hospital room or pretending we're a minister. No, it's about everything we do and every room we enter. Yes, it's about the words we speak to one another, but it's also about the things we create with our hands. It's about the systems we design in our businesses and governments. It's about the things we teach children in our schools and in our homes. It's about the dignity we show people who are marginalized and forgotten by others. It's about the compassion we have towards those the world says are disposable and useless. How would your life be different if every room you entered, you chose to represent God in that place? God of kindness and justice and acceptance. How would our communities be different? Our families, our society. This is our purpose. We fail at it over and over because we do not reflect the image of God well. We are broken mirrors that need to be mended. And I'm sure in the weeks to come as we continue to explore God in this series, we'll hear about how He is mending us and how He is restoring His image in us and how He is calling us to a glorious future. But first, we have to get clarity about why He made us in the first place. So today, as we begin this series, I want you just to be thinking about these two core questions. One, how have you gone about determining your purpose? Are you living as if this is an accidental universe and it's just all about you and you can concoct whatever purpose you want? Or do you recognize you are part of a larger story, a bigger purpose? And are you looking to your heavenly Father to help you understand what that is? And then secondly, if you believe what Scripture says, that you are indeed created in the image of God, how are you carrying the dignity of that calling into every room you enter and bestowing that dignity on the image bearers of God that you meet there? Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, 
My prayer for myself and my sisters and brothers here is that if if we are guilty of the arrogance of thinking we can determine our own purpose, I pray that you would graciously humble us. Help us to see the bigger story. Help us to recognize the larger universe that you have created and that you have brought us into. Help us to humbly submit our lives to you, our maker. And Lord, for others here, who are feeling worthless, who feel their life does not matter, who are feeling marginalized and disposable, Lord, I pray that you would lift them up, turn your face toward them, and help them feel the warm dignity of your presence and the importance that they have in life with you and life in this world. May they realize they are not a slave. They are a son. They are a daughter. Whether we need humility, Lord, or dignity, I pray that you would graciously give us what we need and walk with us from this place as we seek to represent you everywhere we go. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God now and forever. Amen.